Go ahead and be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Micah, uh, chapter 4. Uh, we're returning to Micah after taking a break last week, and then we are going to be taking a break this next week because Jacob Hansen is going to be preaching next week as he's visiting. And uh, so what we wanted to do is just sort of recap where we've been in Micah. So Michael or Micah has been functioning, or Micah functions in sort of these uh, three cycles, right? That's kind of the structure of the book. There's three cycles, and each cycle consists of a judgment, a word of judgment, followed by a word of hope. And the word of judgment is designed to warn the unfaithful to repent, to return, um, <clears throat> return to faithfulness. And the word of hope is meant to encourage the faithful. So it's worth noting that not all of the people of Israel were unfaithful. So as Micah <clears throat> warns of the judgment of God against this nation, against his covenant people who have been covenantly unfaithful to him and to the covenant, there are those who are faithful in the midst of that. And it's easy to see how those faithful people might become discouraged or dejected, uh, might think that maybe God has given up on the nation as a whole. I mean, the, the unfaithful people don't really care. <clears throat> they're, they're leveraging God's name in their wickedness as a sort of sense of safety and protection in their sin. So they are presuming upon God to protect them and keep them, uh, all the while rejecting him practically in their lives and in their hearts. And so they're not really too concerned about this. The people that would be concerned about this, the people that would be discouraged by this, would be the people that are just ordinary faithful Israelites that are walking through their lives, following Yahweh, obeying what he has said, seeking to honor him, raising their children to know the Lord in the midst of this perverse generation of people all around them that are uh, running off the rails and abandoning God. And so when you hear this oracle of judgment, it could be very easy for these faithful Israelites to think, oh my gosh, what's the point? I mean, good grief. If I'm just going to be taken away into captivity with the rest of these schmucks, what has been the point of all of, of, of this faithfulness, of, of sticking with God throughout the midst of this? And what about all these promises that he's made in the past that I've been trusting in? What do we do with those? And so Micah graciously gives them a word of hope and encouragement. Hearing, in hearing that the judgment of God is falling upon the nation, the faithful people of God need to be encouraged and reminded that God has not abandoned his promises. And in order to do that, he makes new promises. The section of hope at the end of this second cycle that we're in right now spans from Micah chapter 4 verse 1 to Micah chapter 5 verse 15. It is the longest hope section in the book, and so we're going to spend a couple weeks in it. This morning we're going to be focusing our attention on Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. So hear the word of the Lord from Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, 
and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is the word that the Lord has for us this morning. In this section, there are two big parts, and we're going to look at each of those parts and then uh, draw some application out from those. Um, The first thing that we see is a future hope, and the second thing we see is a current response. And the big idea of this passage If you want to encapsulate this passage in one sentence, the big idea of this passage is hope in God's future promises should result in current faithfulness. Hope in God's future promises should result in current faithfulness. So let's look at this future hope. Within this this section of verses 1 through 5, the first four verses are really focused on a future hope for Israel. Um, And we see a few things that are characteristic of this uh, future hope. The first thing that we see is that the kingdom will be established. We see that in verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to, throw, flow to it. This verse points to hope that the kingdom of God will be established. Now, in, in chapter 3, we saw that uh, Two weeks ago, it ended like this in in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house, a wooded height. So it's it's no coincidence that he ends the last or or the the oracle of judgment in chapter 3 with saying the mountain of the house, a wooded height. It's going to be overgrown. It's going to be desolate. There's going to be wood sprouting up where a temple once was. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, In the latter days, in the future, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In other words, the kingdom is going to be established. And and we said at the beginning of of Micah that these high places, these mountains, were places of worship. They were were characteristic of worship. And and if you were an idol worshiper, you would go to the high place of that mountain that God that you were worshiping, little case G, and you would worship there. If you remember uh, Jesus, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman in, uh, in John, she says, Jews say to worship on this mountain, we worship on this mountain. So the, these high places are a big deal. When, when God comes down in judgment upon his people in the first chapter, he treads over the high places. He absolutely desolates their idolatry. And, and he's saying here that even the house of the Lord, even the mountain hill, Mount Moriah, will not survive this devastation that is to come in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, the very first thing he says is, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. Now, it doesn't say that the house of the Lord shall be established on the highest mountain. It says the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain. And I take that to mean that the worship of Yahweh as God, as the one true God, will become the pinnacle and and all these nations, all these peoples are going to flow to it because he is worthy of praise and they're going to recognize the the value and worth of Christ over and above the idols that they've worshipped before. He will so far surpass 
these other high places, that this will be the highest of places. And God will establish the mountain of the house of the Lord as the highest of mountains. Temple will be destroyed. Now we read in the latter days that something different is going to happen. And this is talking about God establishing his kingdom, and it's pointing us to Christ and the church. God is going to do something amazing. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 2? He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. And everybody around him couldn't understand what the heck he was saying, because they were like, wait a minute. It took like 60 years to build this thing. How is this guy going to raise up this temple in three days, when it took 60 years to build? And I, I saw this documentary on, uh, it was like on Discovery Channel or something like that. There, there's this project where they're building a castle. And, and they're building this medieval castle exactly like they built medieval castles. Right? They're using the same tools. They're using the same, um, the, the same uh, abilities that they had then. I mean, it's all hand-hewn stone and levers and lifting stuff up and setting stuff and carving everything just perfectly. Um, and... This, this thing is not going to be done in the lifetime of the people that are working on it, right? And so, so you can see this, this amazing structure. And Jesus says, destroy this, and I'll, I'll bring it back in three days. And they're like, what in the heck? The problem is that they were looking at a physical temple. They were looking at a physical structure. They didn't understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the temple of God. In um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, we see that if we have come to know Christ, we have come to the Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So if you have come to know Jesus Christ, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, to the, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's echoed in Galatians. Jerusalem above is our mother as the church. In um, 1 Peter 2, chapter 5, or chapter 2, verse 5, we see that we are living stones being built in a spiritual house for God. Each believer is a living stone, and Christ is the chief cornerstone. In Revelation 21, 2, we see that uh, we have come to the new Jerusalem, and that comes down from heaven, and it's for God, and it says that it's adorned as a bride for the bridegroom. So what is the king, or what is the church then? The church is the kingdom of God visible on earth. The church is the new Jerusalem. The church is the highest mountain. The church is where people from all nations come to worship God. Now, obviously, we're in the midst of this process, right? Christ inaugurated this. The kingdom is growing. But the promise that Micah makes here is that the kingdom of God, the church, will be established. Established in the same way that, like, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not, not established as it started, and it might work, might not. We're talking, like, established as in unmoving, unshakable. It's there forever, and it is the highest of the mountains. <clears throat> It's lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. The gospel and its triumph in the world is what he's talking about here. 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The second thing we see in this future hope is that people from all nations will worship the Lord. Look at verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here we see that this glorious future isn't just for the nation of Israel, but it's for all the nations of the earth. This is heralding back to the promises God made to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this hope that Micah is highlighting isn't just for the nation of Israel. It's for all the people, all the nations. And we see this through the entire New Testament. What happens? Jesus comes. He establishes his church. The church starts to spread throughout primarily Jewish circles initially. And as you read Acts, you do not get very far into Acts before Peter, who is the most Jewish of all Jews, is given a a vision by God and told to eat unclean animals. And he's like, whoa, 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 I've never done that. I would never do that. I've, I've, I've done all the right stuff. I've been clean. He, 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 he still views Gentiles the way that most view, Jews view Gentiles, right? They're unclean. And, and I'm not touching them. I'm not going near them. And God says, don't say what I've given you is unclean. Go ahead and take, eat. And then he wakes up and he gets called to a Gentile home. Now, simply walking into a Gentile home makes one unclean in Jewish culture. And, and so he, called, he goes into this Jewish home. He's like, well, okay, I guess I'm going to preach him the gospel. And what happens? As he's talking to them, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and they're like, what must we do to be saved? Like, what, what, what do we do? We're in. So then, remember what happens? He goes back, and he tells all the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about this. I've heard stories that Gentiles, this is a Jewish thing, man. And, and, and then he tells them what happens. And they're like, well, if God gives them the spirit, I guess who can withhold baptism from them too? Like, I mean, I guess they're in. And, and then you follow the book of Acts. And isn't it interesting that the book of Acts is mainly focused on the nations? I mean, the book of Acts follows Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, for the most part. You get to a point where Peter just kind of disappears off the book, and then it's following Paul and Barnabas, and Silas, and they're going to Gentile places. Now, they always start at the Jewish synagogue, but then they go to the Gentiles when they get rejected by the, the Jews in the synagogue. This, this message is going forth to all the nations. And then in Revelation, we see that there will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all gathered together to worship Jesus Christ. This is not an ethnic religion. This is a worldwide faith that is offered to everybody of every tribe, of every nation, and is going forth and expanding. I mean, think about Matthew chapter 28. In Micah, we see all the nations flow to the mountain of the Lord and, learn to, and, and are taught. And that comes through us going. Matthew 28, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody just kind of stops there, right? What's next? And teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Go to all nations. Pantata ethne. All of the peoples. So when Jesus comes, he inaugurates this kingdom, and this kingdom is not just for the Jews, it's for all the nations. And all the nations are flowing to Christ through the believers going out, through sharing the gospel, through sending missionaries, through 
through people going to Burma and, and uh, unreached tribal areas, through parents teaching their children, through us talking to our neighbors. And it says that out of Zion, it goes, goes forth the law and the word from, of God from Jerusalem. Again, this is a process, right? We tend to think that when we read things like this, this should be like, it happens right then, right there. But, but it doesn't happen like that, right? There, there are still unreached peoples, right? There are still nations that are unreached that don't know about Jesus. You can still go to places in the world they've never heard the name Jesus Christ or heard the gospel, right? Okay, hold on, we'll get to you, right? We're working, we're working through this. God's not in a hurry. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. We'll come back to that in a minute. But this is a process, right? This is a process that is happening, it's not something we should expect to happen right away. We are instant gratification culture. I taught my child that. Why aren't they, why aren't they grasping it? Come on. But isn't it interesting that like, you're teaching your child and you're always teaching your child? Like You're reminding your child. You're, right, you're, you're training up your child. It's not like one moment your kid just like, bing, oh, you're an adult now. Right? It's a process. It's a process of growing and maturing. And, and the kingdom of heaven is that way come back to that in a minute. But for right now, this is happening. It began with Christ and continues today and will continue until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So while it is being fulfilled, it will not be fully fulfilled until all the nations are reached and Christ returns. And I think that's what Micah is pointing us to. Something that we can look forward to. Hope in the future that we have. I say that because in the next verse, look at verse 3. We see that justice and peace will reign supreme. That's the third part of this future hope. Justice and peace will reign supreme. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up the sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you realize how prolific the art of war has been in education of people for, for since the beginning of time, right? There's, there's whole uh, degrees, political science and military history and military, like if you're in the military, you are a student of war. That's what you are. You go to the war college in Leavenworth if you're an officer. Like these things are, uh, they've always been, and there have always been disputes between nations, and there has always been conflict between nations. But this is saying that the people will come, that come to Christ are made new, and he is their king. When the gospel is accepted and embraced, then we will live under the kingship of Christ. And then when that happens, this happens. Now, this is going to have a global reach. Now, has this happened yet? Um, turn on the news, right? There's this whole Ukraine-Russia thing. There's, you, you don't even, I mean, Ben was saying it. Like, there's so much, so much stuff out there that you can't even keep up with all of it. There's, there's, there's things that aren't even worthy of media attention because they're not a big enough deal, like mass, you know, mass extinctions in Africa where tribes are just wiping out other tribes. Um, so, so we don't live here yet. Right? That's why I say it's a process. It's happening. 
It's happening as the gospel goes forth, though. It's not happening through some military leader or through some the right president or through this or that reform. It's happening as the gospel goes forward. It's happening as the power of God is embraced by the nations and all of the nations submit themselves to his lordship and his rule as king of kings and lord of lords. And this, this language of settling disputes is common language in the Near East, Near East to talk about judging the judgment of kings. In other words, sovereign rulers. And the result of God being the judge of the nations and exercising his authority is that justice and peace will reign supreme. There will be no more need for weapons because peace will be the order of the day. All rebellion will be quelled. All enemies will be defeated. There will no longer be war. I think this is a picture of paradise and the new heavens and the new earth where God judges the nations, deals with his enemies, and then reigns and rules over all creation with all bowing the knee to him. And there's, the result is peace and tranquility and um, justice. This is a picture of paradise in the new heavens and the new earth where all the righteous, saved by God's grace from every nation, will dwell together in peace. And while this is a future reality, it has implications for the world we live in today. The fourth thing we see, though, is that people will live in abundance and security. We see that in verse 4. In verse 4, but they shall sit each man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Isn't it amazing that the final part of that sentence, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. He speaks, it's done. He doesn't accomplish this through clever political maneuvering. He doesn't accomplish this in any way other than the same way that he created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in him by speaking. In other words, his word will be honored throughout all of the world. And the result of his word being honored throughout all of the world is people will live in abundance and insecurity. You won't have to worry about anything. All of the things that you worry about on every day, basis, the things that you are so accustomed to worrying about that you subconsciously worry about them and don't realize that you're worrying about them, those will not be an issue. The, the picture is a picture of peace and abundance and security. You sit down under your fig tree. You sit down under your own vines. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fear. There's nothing that's going to get you. There's nothing that's going to go awry. Like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that living in a world, living in a place where you don't have to worry about anything? And listen, for, for, we can get maybe not having to worry about ourselves doing something stupid, but you don't have to worry about anybody else doing something stupid, right? There's no fear. There's total bounty and abundance and, and peace and tranquility. It's paradise, so in chapter 3, we see that God is pulling away, and we see his absence. In chapter 4, we see him coming closer in his presence. In chapter 3, we see God's silence. In chapter 4, we, see, we hear his voice. In chapter 3, we see corruption and injustice. In chapter 4, we see perfect justice and peace. In chapter 3, we see idolatry. In chapter 4, we see the exclusive worship of God. In chapter 3, there are corrupt leaders. In chapter 4, there's a perfect judge. In chapter 3, there's destruction. In chapter 4, these rebuilding. And that's the first five verses. This is a tremendous hope and a tremendous promise to these people. 
Judgment isn't the final word. There is a glorious future that God is promising. And this future includes all the nations and centers around the worship and reign of God, which results in peace and security. Better days are coming. So there's a future hope. But then there's also a current response. Look at verse 5. And I think what's happening here is as this oracle is spoken, verse 5 is the response of the faithful people to God to this promise right here. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And, and the point is obey and follow God no matter what everybody else does. If this is the future, if it's true and real, then there is really one response for the faithful believers of God now. And that is damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter if everybody else goes off the rails. We will be the people that follow God. So while the nations rage and rebel against God, so what? When the neighbor flies pride flags, so what? If this glorious future is promised and the promises of God are true, it means two things. First of all, we aren't living that reality now, so stop pretending like we are. Right? We, d- we don't live in the new heavens and the new earth now. And, and there's a lot of ways, and I'm not going to get into specifics because it's different for each person. I just want to make a broad general statement here. There's a lot of ways that we try and, have, and, and live as if the new heavens and the new earth have come. Especially when it comes to our relationship with the world. You've got to figure out where that is in your own life. But we all do it, right? We all have this over-realized eschatology. And we even, we even say it like, even within the church, Right? Now, theoretically, yes, we should be able to resolve conflict with every believer every time, and it shouldn't be an issue, right? Yes, amen. Yet at the same time, we have this issue of sin that we have to, have to deal with, and sometimes God takes years, years to expose in our own hearts our own sinful inclinations that we've been suppressing and ignoring. So, so it's foolish to try to live in this world now as if it is the future reality that, that's been promised, right? They're realistic about their situation. Everybody else is worshiping their other gods. We're gonna, they don't pretend like everybody's going to worship Yahweh with them. This is a future promise, not yet fully realized. The second thing it means is that it will one day come about that every, or, and, and that the, uh, sorry, it will one day come about what God has said will come true, and that surety provides confidence we need now to walk faithfully in a world of idolatry and wickedness. So we don't pretend like we live in the new heavens and the earth, but by the same token, we don't jump in bed with the world. The, the foundation for faithfulness now in the midst of a wicked and perverse world is the surety of God's promises in the future hoping in God's promises. And so this is in the process of happening. Like I said before, we think it should just instantly happen, like automatically show up, like, like when the way party beams down, boom, they're there. That's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom arrives when Christ comes, and it has been expanding since. So for the last 2,000 years, 
So Jesus teaches that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, right? A tiny little seed that you plant. Now, we're in the process of planting a garden right now. Some other people are as well, or you've already done it because you're ahead of us. Good for you. We're late. But analogy stays the same, right? The kids are notorious for this. You put a, put a seed in the ground. You cover it up. You water it. What do they do? They come back the next day. Where is it? Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Where is it? And then you go and you come back the next day. It's no, what's, the, what's the inclination there? Dig it up. See what's going on. The problem is that things are happening under the surface and it happens slowly. So a mustard seed gets planted. And, and you know, I, I looked this up. A mustard seed becomes up to 25 feet tall and as wide. 25 feet tall and 25 feet wide. Starts off as a little tiny seed. Now, does it become 25 feet tall and 25 feet wide like that? Or does it take years, decades to get there? We've got a, we've got a, uh, a maple tree that we're going to move in our backyard. And so we looked it up. How much does it grow each year? Well, you know how big maple trees get. Maple trees get huge, right? 12 to 18 inches a year. So we're like, all right, so like, uh, you know, 50 years from now, this is going to be great to look at, right? The, the kingdom is like that. It doesn't just happen automatically. It started with Jesus being born in a manger. And it's not like D-Day. It happens slowly. It happens over time. And at times it looks like it, doesn't even it isn't even happening at all, Right? God, someone once wrote that God advances the kingdom through a series of triumphs that are cleverly disguised as defeats. And we know because we have the New Testament that while we as a church should strive to be a microcosm of the glorious future here on earth, it won't be fully realized until Christ comes. So the call here, the current response, is to be faithful here where we are, as we are, and hope in God's future promises, right? I can't change the world. I can't change all these other things. What can I do? It might seem like an insignificant thing to raise a family in a world gone absolutely haywire crazy to follow Jesus and, and believe the Bible. But do you realize that that is the very thing that every believer should be doing right now? And that is probably the thing that is going to have the most tremendous impact for the kingdom long term that you can do? Like, it's in the process of happening. And yet we all know from experience that though we should be marked by worship and justice and peace between us, that sin comes into play. And we all struggle at times with idolatry. And so God has provided the gospel, what we need to overcome sin. So put it another way, it's still wise to have a gun to protect your home. Don't go take and melt your guns down and turn them into plowing implements. It's still wise right now to have a gun in your home. But by the same token, that's not where it will end up. And, and that's a temporary period of time that we're living in. And the future that we have, you won't need that gun. Now, some of us might want the gun. 
but then it'll only be used for target practice and then just for fun. And ammo will be cheap and abundant. But in the meantime, I'm only half joking. Um, in the meantime, right, like we, we buy to protect, like you get a weapon to protect yourself and that will one day not be necessary anymore. That's a tremendous thought. And so we still need to be wise in this world because the enemies of God are still being made his footstool. And this prophecy, while in the process of being fulfilled, is not yet fully fulfilled. And it won't be until the new heavens and the new earth. So we have a lot to look forward to. We have a lot lot to anticipate together. And all of the things that I've mentioned in the first four verses are still promises God has made and are not yet fully realized. And so obey and follow God no matter what everybody else does. Live verse 5 because of verses 1 through 4. Now, let me briefly go into a few points of application because I think that these are really important. The first one is live under the authority of the king. And that ties back to the last thing that we just said. So while this text is not yet fully fulfilled, we are being transformed. And while while there is no world peace, there can be peace between believers. But that only happens... It only happens if both parties are submitting themselves to King Jesus. We've been given new hearts, and those new hearts should willingly, joyfully submit to Christ. There is a peace now between us and God, and a degree of peace between us and the nations as we submit to God. And what I mean by that is I can go to Uganda, to Romania, to to, um, Mongolia, and I can have fellowship with believers over in those places that I've never met before. And, and our countries might even be at war. Like, I could have fellowship with a believer who's at a part of a country that's at war with my country because we're both submitting to King Jesus, because we're both following Jesus. Disputes between believers can be arbitrated by God through his word as believers submit to his kingship and live under his authority and rule. So there is no aspect of our lives as Christians that the authority of God and authority of Christ should not impact. We should therefore be diligently seeking his will and purpose through his word, and then we should joyfully submit to it in faith when we see it, not resist it. We must also recognize that no matter how committed we are to this, we will still fail, and so repentance and forgiveness must be watchwords for us. There are people that go through their entire lives in enmity with other believers. And here's the amazing thing about this promise. One day, let's say they both die, unresolved issues. One day, those issues will be resolved. And it won't be resolved because one got it right and one got it wrong. It will be resolved because they'll see Jesus together and they'll realize that they each were in need of the same grace. And the only ability to stand before King Jesus is what King Jesus has done for us. And all of those stupid things that we fight about will fade away. They won't be important anymore. So these promises will be realized fully one day. And we must pray for that day and live in light of its future surety now through living in faith. We should be people who live as those destined for this glorious reality now this reality and and live now so far as it depends on us in peace that's Romans 12:18 notice he says so far as it depends on us don't worry about whether the other person is following Jesus are you submitting to king Jesus
So that's the first point of application. The second one is this. God knows what he is doing. If we are to hope in God's promises, we must believe and trust that God knows what he is doing and that what he is doing in, and the way that he is doing it is meant to achieve a glorious end. So all the judgment and oracles in Micah have a point. God hasn't lost control of the world. He's the sovereign ruler. He is all wise. He does all things according to the counsel of his will. And all of the stuff in Micah and the Old Testament was done in order to bring about the Messiah. It all had a point. God knew what he was doing. And I am very sure in the early days of the church, when there was persecution and and Christians were being thrown into pits and torn apart by lions and burned on poles to light gardens, I am very sure that in those days, there were people that were following Jesus that were tempted to ask, what is going on? Has God lost control? And yet the universal answer from history is God knows what he is doing and has not lost control. The issue is that we are not him. We don't see what he sees. You might not know what to do. You might question whether the decision that you made is the right one. But you've heard that hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Ten years from now, you look back, and you're like, oh, that was the right one. Or, oh, that was the wrong one. I should have done that differently. God doesn't have that. Right? He, he, doesn't, fall, he doesn't fall into that category. He's not like, oops, wish I would have done that differently. Let's try to make this thing even out here. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. We, however, are living in a world as finite beings and can't see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And that's by design in order that we would learn to trust God. And one day when we are given new bodies, I believe that we will clearly see and be able to look back on human history and even our own circumstances and see that God was working and he knew what he was doing. We will behold he had everything under control and knew what he was doing and what he was up to and everything that he was doing was working toward a glorious end. We just couldn't see it. And so the challenge is to live in faith now. God knows what he's doing. Trust God. Trust his wisdom and providence. Trust his power and knowledge. Trust that only he knows what he is doing and that everything that he is doing is working to the end of his glory and our good. That's all we can do. We're supposed to live by faith. So God has a purpose for your, your family and your afflictions. God has a purpose for our national calamity at the moment. He isn't asleep at the wheel. So when things feel, seem like they're falling apart, the response should be to go to our knees. And some things you might see in five or ten years what he's been up to, and some things you might have to wait until you die. But he knows what he's doing. Final point of application. Hope in God's promises. This very Lord's Day, there are, around the world, millions of people gathering to worship Jesus. It is not just us. It is not just this town. It is not just this state. It is not just this country. All around the world, millions of people are gathering today to proclaim Jesus and to worship him as Lord and King. That was promised here. And it's in the process of growing. 
Think of how it began. Jesus, born in Bethlehem to a believing family, and then calling 12 disciples, and then going to the cross and dying and rising again. And when he ascended into heaven, he gave the great commission to 120 people. And those 120 people were praying in a room, and the Spirit came upon them, and then 3,000 people, and then 5,000 people. And then it just kept on multiplying out. So it started out with 120 people. Now, I looked this up, and they estimate, as experts, whatever, take that for what you will, estimate for between uh, 170 and 400 million people alive when Jesus went to the cross. So let's just split it and call it 250. 250 million people, 120 believers. Odds are not looking good, right? What impact can 120 believers have on 250 million people? Well, now there are, um, as you read Acts, you see that they just kind of keep going and going and they're just faithful and ordinary things, sharing the gospel. And now, according to the World Christian Encyclopedia, in 2020, there were 386 million evangelicals in the world and growing. That was up like 100 million from the year before. So nations are being reached. I can go worship in Uganda or Mongolia or Romania or Germany with Christians, and 2,000 years ago, there was no one in that area that knew Christ. Yet God said he would be faithful. So Elijah looked around. He said he was the only one. And God said, no, I've got 7,000 that I've reserved that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, right? And, and then you think of Abraham when God made the promise to him that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky. How, how can that be? I'm old. My wife's old. How in the world is this possible? And the common denominator between Elijah and Abraham was they were looking around and not looking up. They were looking in the newspaper and the situation that they could observe and not thinking about God and that all things are possible to him. And the same thing is true today. There are people that look at new newspapers and are confined to what they can observe and they lose hope because the people around them are sacrificing their children to Moloch and taking rainbows, which are a symbol of God's faithfulness to his word to never wipe out humanity for their depravity and they're co-opting it into a symbol that celebrates depravity, mocking God while benefiting from his faithfulness to his promises. And we can look around us and we can see all around us what is going on? And it can seem like the kingdom is stalled. But he's still advancing the kingdom. He's still saving people. He's still faithful to his promise. He's still exercising dominion and sovereignty over the world and its nations. He is still calling men and women to be missionaries. He is still giving children to faithful parents who raise those children to follow God and trust Jesus. He is still building the church. And the evidence for that is we are meeting here along with Christians from all over the world. The mustard seed is growing. The tree is getting bigger. And if faithful people of God could hope in these promises and say, we will walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever, and yet it would be hundreds of years before this promise would even begin to be fulfilled, how much more should we who are in the midst of seeing it fulfilled be faithful to God now and hope in his future promises? The fuel for faithfulness in the midst of iniquity is hope in the promises of God. Let's pray.